And now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 20 as we continue our study in the book of Revelation from 2011 through the end of the chapter. Hear now God's holy word. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were open and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your perfect justice. And we pray that in all things we would be found in Christ, that his works would be applied to us, and that we in the day of judgment would stand only in his works on our behalf. We ask you to give us a proper amount of sobriety and solemnity as we consider your things, your judgment of all things, and guide us into truth. Deliver us from error, deliver us from all distraction, and guide us into truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the earliest phrases we learn to say as children, sometime after we learn how to say mommy and daddy and milk and cookie, we learn to say the phrase, that's not fair. Children have a pronounced sense of justice and they have a great intolerance for injustice. If a brother or sister gets something I don't get, if what they get is bigger or better than what I get, if they get to do something that I don't get to do, well then that's not fair. And it, it's not easier for us the older we get. You may think that we might mellow a little bit with age, but in fact, this sense of an intolerance uh, for unfairness only grows as we get older. When we're young adults, we might be on a basketball team where we know that we're pretty good at basketball, but the coach's son gets way more playing time. In fact, he gets to play the whole game while we sit on the bench. That's not fair. Or we apply for a job. We know we're qualified for the job, but uh, somebody's dad knows the guy who's doing the hiring and he gets the job and we don't. Or uh, you're going down the highway and everybody's going 15 miles over the speed limit, but who gets pulled over? We do. I do. <laughs> then we get the ticket. That's not fair. It's not fair. And eventually, ultimately, this cry of injustice, this demand for fairness begins to be directed at God over the most serious matters in life. I want to be married, but I can't find the person who loves me. I can't find the person that I fit with, that I click with. I can't find the right person. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, but I, I can't find that person. Or I just got squared away financially, but now there's sickness in the family and I'm swimming in hospital bills. Or I did what I was supposed to do at work, but now I've lost my job. I've been laid off, and now I might lose the house. How is that fair? That's not fair. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and I'm not getting the reward. I'm not getting the payoff for doing what I'm supposed to do. These questions, if we aren't ordering our thoughts biblically, these questions drive us to despair, especially when we see there are all kinds of wicked people running around doing whatever they want, and they never seem to get what they deserve. They never seem to get what's coming to them. Nothing gets in their way. They're just fine. And here I am beating my head against the wall. It's not fair. 
In Psalm 73, that psalmist who's named Asaph, he has some of the very same questions and the very same complaints. He says in Psalm 73, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. In fact, what he's saying is I, I nearly stopped trusting in God. I nearly gave up hope. Why? Well, this is what he says. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. In summary, they say whatever they want to say, they do whatever they want to do, they run flat over people, and they never get what's coming to them. Asaph is saying, that's not fair. But the resolution for Aphaz comes a few verses later in the psalm. He suddenly realizes, wait a minute, nobody ever gets away with anything, ultimately. He says, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. And what he understood was that nothing ever goes unpunished. Everything gets dealt with. The judge of all the earth gets the last word. And out of perfect knowledge, he meets out perfect justice with perfect equity. And so he wraps up the psalm saying, you cast them down to destruction for indeed those who are far from you shall perish. The book of Revelation also assures us that everyone ever born will stand before Jesus and give an account. And there before the throne of Jesus in judgment, all of our complaints about unfairness, all of the inequities of history... All of the injustices of the world get sorted out finally and fully. The irony of it all is that there are still people who read that and who see that and who hear it who say, well, that's not fair. It's not fair for God to do that. God's judgment is unfair. And I don't like the way he does things. I don't like the way he judges. I don't like the way he punishes wickedness. What kind of God condemns the wicked to an eternity of punishment? How can you even believe that? What kind of person believes in hell? Well, the short answer to that, and I'm going to give a much longer answer this morning, but the short answer to that is that if you believe God's judgment is unfair, then you haven't got a clue about the supreme purity and intensity of his holiness or the deep repugnance of our sin, our treason against his holiness and perfection. You understand neither his holiness nor your sin when you look at God's judgment and say, that's not fair. You don't understand either one. It's not God who's despicable. It's not God who is reprehensible. His judgments are not unfair. We are. Let God be true and every man a liar. It is out of his love that he judges cosmic treason against his holiness with eternal punishment, or else he would be a God who allows rebellion and, and tyranny and hatefulness and murder and bloodthirst, let it run wild for eternity. But that's not who he is because out of love, he puts a lid on it and he clamps it down and he isolates it for eternity. All rebellion will be stopped. Everyone gets what's coming to them. 
Now, we may admit that the doctrine of a literal hell is uncomfortable. I'll agree with that. It is uncomfortable in the sense that it's not, it's not easy to talk about it. And it isn't something you, you feel like you can't bring that up in polite company because it makes us profoundly uneasy and maybe even a little bit nauseated. I'll admit that, that the doctrine of eternal punishment is nauseating because of the sheer terror and immensity and the eternality and the, it, it, our brains can't contain it. And we are a people, we don't like inconvenient realities. We don't like dwelling on them. We'd rather have a few distractions, a few euphemisms. Just don't talk about it directly. But you can't do that and be faithful to the scriptures because Jesus speaks about hell as a reality. In Matthew 5.22, Jesus speaks about hellfire. In Matthew 8.12 and 22.13, he mentions outer darkness. I'm listing all these references, not because I think you're writing them all down. Some of you may be able to write them down, but this is recorded. And if you have questions, you could always go back and you could check my math. But here in these places, Jesus is speaking about hellfire, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Luke 13, 28, he talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth again. In Mark 9, 44 through 48, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah three times, and he talks about a fire in hell that will never be quenched where their worm does not die, talking about the wicked, those who are punished. Their worm will not die. I heard that phrase a lot as a kid, and I, I heard it growing up, and I always wondered what that meant. Well, I stopped this week and said, wait a minute, I'm not even sure I can explain that. What does that mean? Well, what does it mean? Well, let's just stop for a moment and figure it out. Whenever you see a word or a concept or something in the scriptures that is unclear, you look at the totality of the Bible and you say, what else, where else does this show up? How am I supposed to understand this within the text of the Bible? There may be secondary resources, and maybe you look at uh, ancient Near East history or customs or whatever, but those are, those are way down the list. You look first at the scriptures and what is the, what is the, how does the scriptures use the word worm? Well, it comes up many places. In Isaiah 41, Israel is called a worm. Jacob is a worm, a tiny, impotent, helpless creature. Can't do anything for himself. Pathetic. That's what, that's what the word means there. In Psalm 22, the psalmist says, I am a worm and not a man. He's describing his helplessness and his weakness and his impotence. So uh, describing someone or something as a worm or using a worm is to describe its absolute, uh, just how, how pathetic and how uh, helpless and, 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 and weak it is. Well, worms are also associated with death and corruption. Uh, dead things get covered in in worms, remember the manna, if you try to keep the manna over to the second day, what happens to it? It gets covered in worms. It goes corrupt. Dead things are filled with worms. So the state of the condemned is associated with helplessness, weakness, and this kind of, uh, this image of, uh, of a decomposition or corruption that goes on forever. And that's what Jesus is talking. He's describing those who are, who are punished as weak and helpless and pathetic and pitiful and in a constant state of corruption. Uh, that's what that refers to. In Mark 9, 47, Jesus mentions hellfire again. The apostle Peter talks about those for whom the blackness of darkness of hell is reserved forever. That's in 2 Peter chapter 2. Jude says almost the exact same thing in Jude 13. 
Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, and our God is a consuming fire. In Revelation so far, in our study of this book, we've read about the lake of fire and the second death. Revelation 14, we read, an angel flies through heaven, warning that those who worship the beast and receive his mark will be tormented with fire and brimstone, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And all of this, all this that I'm giving you is just a sampling of the Bible's language of eternal punishment. I don't have to create some uh, fantastic or mythical or, or overly descriptive uh, maudlin uh, uh, account of hell. I don't, I don't have to manipulate you with, with uh, uh, things that, that I could come up with. The language in the Bible is sufficient. The language of the Bible is enough. That's just a sample of it. And hell is not an obscure doctrine that you have to kind of squint at to see in the scriptures. It's right there in front of you. And it's before us as we come to this section of our study of Revelation. Let's catch up quickly to where we are in this book. At this point in our timeline, there has been a great golden age of the advance of the gospel on earth in history. The church has been victorious in her mission. The nations are discipled. Heaven and earth have never been more closely aligned, and yet they're not perfectly aligned. God frees Satan. Satan has been restrained throughout this golden age of the gospel. Satan has been restrained, but he's not been destroyed. And God frees him so that he can go deceive the nation, so that he can lead one final rebellion. His job is to draw out all opponents of Christ to remain in the world, to gather them all together in one place so that they are eliminated in one last battle. That's the purpose of unleashing Satan so that he can fall into his own trap and be defeated forever. Now we come to this section where Satan has been defeated forever and it's time for the final judgment of all things. This phase of human history that we're living in right now will be over at that point and heaven and earth will enter the eternal state. So let's pick up in verse 11. <clears throat> then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. Now, who is the one who sits on this throne? Is it the father? I believe it's the Lord Jesus himself. It's in this book, it's Jesus who sits on a white cloud. It's Jesus who sits on a white horse. It's Jesus who's robed in white. Jesus sits here on a white throne but it's also in other places in the Bible that we read that Jesus is going to be the judge of all the earth. In Matthew 25, it's Jesus who judges the nations and separates the sheep from the goats. In Acts 10.42 and 2 Timothy 4.1, Jesus is called the judge of the living and the dead. In Acts 17.31, Jesus will judge the world in righteousness, we read. Jesus is the judge of all things. Jesus is the one who died for the world. He's the one who bought the world with his blood. He's the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess his lordship over all things. We testify to this every Lord's Day in the Apostles' Creed and in the Nicene Creed. We see Jesus sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the judge, ultimately. The father is pleased with his beloved son, and he's given his son all authority in heaven and earth. And so everyone will have to face Jesus. Everyone will have to face this king who out of love died for our salvation. And those who reject him, 
those who hate him, those who can't even say his name without it being a curse or a swear, they're going to have to look him in the eye. The ones who rejected his love are going to have to face him and hear from him his final verdict on their life. It's Jesus who makes these judgments that we're about to read it uh, about. You know, Jesus, the one that everyone thinks is the cooler, you know, more easygoing, more chill member of the Trinity, the one who only talks about love, the one who only talks about friendship, you know, uh, the one who will never judge anybody. Yeah, he is the judge. He's the judge of all the earth. He's the one who sits on the throne and he earned his spot through his death, through his sacrifice, through his suffering and through his resurrection and ascension. He's the judge. He's the one you'll have to face. From Jesus' face, we read, the earth and heaven fly away. We're going to see yet a newer heavens and a newer earth. In verse 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I'm sorry, chapter 21, the beginning of chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had, had passed away. So um, before the face of Jesus, heaven and earth fly away. Uh, in relationship to the old covenant world, we are presently living in a new creation. We're living in a new heaven and a new earth because we've got a different situation. After the ascension of Jesus, there's a man ruling from heaven. Jesus, the man, sits at the right hand of God the Father. Humans, men and women, populate the courts of heaven now. Satan has been kicked out of heaven. Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall like lightning. There's a new heaven. There's a new arrangement in the heavens. That's a new heaven. Uh, we are also living on an earth where corruption and death don't spread the way that they once did under the old covenant, where Satan is no longer unleashed to do whatever he wants to deceive the nations, where the gospel goes out and while it's opposed, it can never be stopped. The gospel can't be contained. This is a new world. This is a new earth. We're living in a new heavens and a new earth with respect to the old heavens and earth of the old covenant. Things work differently in the new heavens and new earth. And yet there is a new uh, heavens and earth that is coming. So it's common for the Bible to speak about worlds dying and new creations emerging. So this present heaven and earth arrangement is going to fly away and be replaced with a new final arrangement where heaven and earth are in perfect unity. And when Jesus takes his throne, the old heavens and earth fly away and it's the beginning of a new era. It's the beginning of a new age, a new creation with Jesus on the throne, heaven and earth merged in perfect unity, where Jesus' prayer is finally and fully realized, thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. That prayer will be finally realized at this, at this point. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. So who is in view here? Who is at this judgment? Is it the righteous and the wicked together, or is it only the wicked? I've been working on this all week and trying to get to an answer that I'm satisfied with and an answer that I'm comfortable with and I'm landing on, I, I, I believe that what's in view here is the judgment of the wicked. And here's how I, how I get to this. Because we read that the sea, 
We're going to try to understand what that is in just a few minutes. But the sea, death and Hades empty out their dead, and the dead stand before the throne and are judged by their works. When are the righteous ever referred to as the dead? We're, we're not told that the dead and the living appear here. We're just the dead are standing before the throne. Um, when are the righteous referred to as the dead? It doesn't seem like this is referring to us. We have passed out of death into life. The righteous have already experienced the only death they will ever experience. They're enjoying the life and the presence of Jesus. The righteous are ruling from thrones in heaven. The righteous are uh, populating the courts of heaven. Uh, the church triumphant is ruling from heaven. And yet here, what we're reading is that it's not heaven that empties out. It's not the thrones of heaven that empty out. Life doesn't empty out. Death and hell empties out for this judgment. The courts of heaven don't empty out. It's the sea, not the land. Sea and land often go together. We're going to come back to that. It's the sea and death and Hades who deliver up the dead. Back in verse Five, we read about those who don't have life again until the end of the millennium. Those who are identified as the dead this whole time, who are cut off from life, the dead are brought to this judgment. And this judgment is one of works. It's a judgment of works. Now, let me come at this from a different direction just briefly. But this is important to cover because I don't want to leave any nail sticking out in your mind. I think, well, what about that? I'm trying to cover as much as I can. We do know that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's precisely what 2 Corinthians 5 says. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In John chapter 5, Jesus teaches about his authority to execute judgment. And Jesus says there, there will be a resurrection of life and there will be a resurrection of condemnation and there he will serve as judge. So it's obvious that there's not only a judgment of the wicked coming, but there is a judgment of the righteous where even the righteous are judged according to their works. In Romans 2 and 18 and following, Paul writes this. It's not the hearers of the law who are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So what Paul is saying is that there is a day when even the secret things of our hearts and lives and our minds are going to be judged. And it's not the hearers of the law who are justified in that day, but the doers of the law who will be justified in that day. It, it seems and certainly sounds like there is a judgment of the righteous according to their works, blessings for faithfulness. James talks about uh, justification by works when he talks about a faith that works. We've studied this before, and we probably need to spend more time on it in the near future, this subject of the function of good works in the lives of covenant keepers and rewards and blessings for faithfulness, how we are Christ's workmanship, how we're created unto good works, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, how, how true faith always works. There is no such thing as a faith, a true faith that bears no fruit. But rather than stopping here and taking a deep dive on that, it's easier just to quote the excellent section of the Westminster Confession on justification. I'm going to read it slowly so I don't miss any words because it's so precise and I love it. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness. So what is faith? Faith is receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, 
Faith is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Faith alone is the instrument of justification. If faith alone accesses the blessings and the works of Jesus that's resting in his works, that is accessed by faith alone. Faith is the instrument of justification, but the confession goes on to say, faith is never found alone in the life of the believer, but faith is always accompanied by many other graces and faith works by love. Faith out of gratitude for the great things that Jesus has done for us, faith responds in good works and in in love. So faith is always accompanied by works flowing out of gratitude and many places in the Bible indicate that we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and there will be a judgment according to our works for believers. However, what is in question here is whether that judgment is happening at the same time as this or whether it's happening soon after. As we open up Revelation 21, which we'll get to next week, we'll read about the righteous. We'll read about the rewards and the blessings and the rest of the righteous. And so it seems to me that what is in view here with these few verses, with this judgment, is the judgment of works of the dead who have rejected Christ. And what's in view here is not salvation by works, but condemnation by works. See, this judgment takes into account one's works. We're all awarded according to our works, but in the final ledger of my life, when all my works are totaled up, it's as if the if they were listed on a ledger, it will be obscured with a big red stamp like librarians used to use or you put on a bill. The big stamp will just say Jesus over my life and over over my works. It's his works, it's his obedience, it's his faithfulness, it's his death, it's his suffering that are all credited to my account. My debt of condemnation goes to him, his obedience goes to my account, and I have no good works by myself on my own. If I am judged by the totality of my good works, my works by themselves, I go to hell and I bust it wide open. I make a hole bigger than Texas when I go to hell if it's based on my works alone. They must be covered by the blood of Jesus. It must be covered by the gift and the sacrifice and the love of Jesus. But there are those whose debts have not been covered by Jesus, who have refused his offer of mercy and forgiveness, and so their works stand on their own, and they are judged by their works, and they don't measure up. They don't qualify. See, all of our best works are stained in sin. All of our highest and best achievements have the taint of rebellion, of selfishness, and pride. As the scriptures say, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. So, so pile up all your good works. What do you think is good? Pile it up. Come on, bring it down. Name everything you can name. And it does not even begin to counterbalance or pay off one act of rebellion against a holy and righteous God. It doesn't pay for one sin. So what's the point here of a judgment of works for those who are about to be turned into punishment. What is the point? Well, it seems that there are degrees of punishment. 
Jesus said, it will be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than it will be for Capernaum. He says, Sodom is actually going to come off much lighter than Capernaum because I've done these works before you and you've seen them and you've still rejected me. Jesus said uh, for certain people like the Pharisees, he said, you'll receive the greater condemnation. So God's judgment is not flatly applied. It's not woodenly applied. There are apparently some whose sins have been more restrained and some who've been less restrained and more violent and more blasphemous than others. And all of this gets resolved in God's perfect judgment. Let me just uh, spend a moment and ask, what about the sea? We read hell or Hades and death deliver up their dead, but what about the sea? What sea gives up the dead for this judgment? Why doesn't he say anything about the land? Usually in Revelation, we get the sea and the land, and the sea, typically throughout Bible prophecy, is talking about the Gentile nations and the land, and the people of the land are referring to Israel. But we don't get land here, we just get sea. So why bring up the sea and the sea giving up its dead? Well, this might be a reference to all who have ever been caught up or drowned in various judgments. Uh, uh, floods of water are, are symbols of God's judgment uh, and, and justice against the wicked, like the flood, like the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army being buried in the Red Sea. Deep waters are associated with judgment. Psalm 18 says, the pangs of death surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. Whenever you have uh, phrases like that lined up in the Psalms, you say, oh yeah, floods, Sheol, pangs of death. Those are all the same thing. He's lining those things up poetically. So floods and Sheol go together. And when Jonah was in the belly of the fish in the depths of the earth, he said, I'm, I'm in hell. He says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me. So, so the depths of the seas are symbolic of the rejection and the judgment of God. And even those who have been judged in history still have an appointment with the judge at this, at this judgment. In, uh, in Revelation, we've also observed that the lake of fire that is before the throne of God uh, has had several cast into it so far. The, that sea also may give up its dead, along with death and Hades. Hades is where the unbelieving wait for the final judgment. They all spill out. All, they're all poured out. Everyone small and great is poured out to stand before God. Kings and peasants, celebrities and ordinary people, all are called to account. There are no bribes. There are no special favors. There's no partiality. They all appear on a level playing field and they're judged each one by one. Verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. 1 Corinthians 15 says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. John Donne's poem, his great poem, Death Be Not Proud, always comes to mind whenever I read 1 Corinthians 15, that great last line where he says, and death shall be no more. Death thou shalt die. Here we get to see it. Here we see the fulfillment of that, that death itself 
dies. Death is defeated and destroyed, and death is banished forever. It can never touch anybody or anything ever, 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 ever again. It's gone. Death is destroyed at this judgment. All the forces of evil and all the forces of destruction and corruption are all wrapped up together, and they're excluded from the eternal kingdom of life. The only power that remains in all of heaven and earth after this point is the power of the triune God. Everything else is gone. Everyone whose name is not written in the book of life, we read, are cast into the lake of fire. The same lake of fire in verse 10, which is said to burn forever and ever. The fire where Jesus described it is a fire that's never quenched, where the worm does not die. It may be way more convenient to think that the condemned, the wicked, those who reject Jesus, it may be more convenient to think that they just simply cease to be, that they simply go out of existence. They just blink away. They're just consumed by the fire and they don't exist anymore. And that's an increasingly popular view. You'll hear it more and more. But one question I have about that, if that's the, if that's the case, then why this judgment of works before that? Why does Jesus say some people in cities receive greater condemnation? Um, how is that worked out if you just blink out of existence, if you just cease to be? Why is there a judgment of works? There's no degrees of separation of blinking out of existence. So while there may be many things I wish were true, and we may wish that there were no hell, wishing doesn't make it true. Belief in a literal hell is indeed inconvenient, and it's increasingly unpopular, but we don't have permission to soften hard realities, nor must we have a solution or an answer to every difficult question? Only to believe what God has said and to say what Abraham said when, when Abraham was struggling with the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, what did he say? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I commit all trust and faithfulness and, and obedience and to submission to God's judgment, knowing that he is perfect and holy and just and everything he, do, he does is going to work out in justice and it's going to be right because God is holy. Whatever he does is done in perfect consistency with his perfect character and justice so that no one will be able to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, that's not fair. There's only one thing that God has ever done that we could ever say, that's not fair. You can look at the cross and you can look at the work of Jesus and you can say, that's not fair. He's taking my place. He is taking my punishment. He is enduring the hell that is my reward for my rebellion against God. He's bearing every one of my sins, not just the big sins, not just the sins that would make the front page of the paper, not just the sins that I cringe over and, and I'm ashamed over, not just those sins, but also the thoughtless sins, the sins of laziness and carelessness, the sins of pettiness and forgetfulness, all, every one, even the slightest thing is a cosmic act of treason that flies in the face of a perfectly holy God. And Jesus bears every one of those sins. Jesus dies for everyone. He gets the penalty and I get life. He is hated and despised and rejected so that I can draw near and I have communion and I have friendship and I can be accepted in the life of the Trinity and the fellowship of the Father and the Son. That's not fair. 
That's not fair. You want to say something's not, that's not fair. Hell is fair. Hell is what we rightly deserve. That's because hell is real. Jesus speaks of it with as much clarity as he does when he speaks about heaven. You can't read Revelation and come away thinking that, oh, it's not really, it's not a reality. Hell is a reality and hell is terrible for the wicked. We've already read, it's described as outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal fire, condemnation, suffering. You may have read or heard somewhere that hell is the absence of the presence of God or that hell is located as far away from God as possible, as if there's any place in all of the cosmos where you can get away from the presence of God. Where in all of the universe can you get away from the presence of God? It may very well be that hell is right under God's throne. The sea of glass, we've already read in Revelation, the sea of glass that's before his throne becomes a sea of fire. And Revelation 14 says that those who are tormented with fire and brimstone there are in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Hebrews says God himself is a consuming fire. So consider the possibility that everyone, all humanity will spend eternity in the presence of God. All those who hate him and reject him and who despise him and his law, those who despise his son are sentenced to endure his nearness, his presence for eternity. Now, for us, that's a delight. It's a delight to think about enduring the presence, the nearness of God for eternity. But for those who hate him, that is torture. But even there, you can see how a loving God, how can a loving God create an eternal hell? It's because God's jealousy for the glory of his son, God's jealousy for the glory of his name and for his people is an expression of his divine love, his passion for his creatures and his name and his son burns like a divine inferno He defends what he loves and he cuts off all threats to his beloved. He cuts off all threats to life, all threats to peace and communion. And he puts them away and puts a lid over the top of them out of love. So then consider the possibility that we all get thrown into his fiery love. We who love him are warmed by his presence. We who are united to Christ, we call that life. But for those who hate him, well, they'll get what they want. They'll get to go on hating him, but they'll have to hate him right at his feet. That's where they'll have to hate him for eternity. Now, what I know for sure is that anyone who does not repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, anyone who does not receive the works of Jesus on their behalf will spend eternity in hell. I don't have any latitude or any wiggle room to soften that. If I were to pull back in the name of compassion, that would be a false compassion. If I know there's danger up ahead, if I know you're driving somewhere and there's a cliff or I know there's a a bridge that's out or if I know that there's some disaster that you're heading into and I don't warn you about that, if I say, yeah, it's probably okay, you're gonna be all right, it's probably not that big of a deal, that's not love, that's violence, that's hatefulness to pretend like it's not real and it's not a danger. And so in the same way, hell is real. It's terrible. Also, it's completely avoidable because Jesus has already drank the cup of wrath for you. 
There's one way to avoid hell, to confess your sins, to trust in Christ, to receive his deliverance, because we will all stand before him in judgment. You have an appointment before the throne of Christ. Some of us will stand before him clothed in the works of Christ, and some of us will be standing there clothed in our own works. I do not want to stand before him with my piddly, pathetic little list of good deeds. You know, my Boy Scout badges, my VBS certificates, all filthy rags, every one of them. I can only stand clothed in his righteousness, which is granted to me when I submit to him. Beloved, you have an appointment to stand before Jesus. And on that day, when you stand before the judge of all the earth, how will you plead? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would indeed draw us near to your son, that you would stamp over the ledger of our lives, his works, his righteousness, his obedience, because Father, we have nothing to contribute on our own. We pray that you would give us your spirit, that we might walk in obedience out of love for this great gift that we have received. And we pray that we would live in such sobriety over the reality of this judgment that we would call all men to repentance, that we would preach the gospel in word and deed, and that all men would know the love of the Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.